Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It's Nick here, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Okay, this week, we have another great interview. I have got on the show JT McCormick. Now, JT McCormick is a very successful entrepreneur. He is the president and CEO of Scribe Media, and that's a publishing company in the US that helps individuals from a variety of backgrounds write, publish, and market their books. Um, Probably the most impressive thing is last year, my favorite book, my book of the year, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, was published by Scribe Media. Now, that's not the reason why I wanted to get JT on, though. I mean, you know, we do talk about that. We talk about his business and what it does. But this is a guy who's come from a background where, you know, he really he had everything against him. Yeah, he was, you know, mixed race kid, uh, lots of racism, poverty, abuse. I'll let him get into his story today, but it's a pretty harrowing story of, of struggle. You know, odds stacked against him, but from that, he's become an incredibly successful business person. So I'll let him tell his story. I, I love bringing people on who have a story, and I love, to, I love you to hear the way they, they think about these things and the way they overcome. So you're going to get into that today. But the core of today, the core of today is culture. Because you don't just, you know, when I talk about this a lot, you know, strategy is important. Execution is absolutely important. But the stuff that puts this together, the glue, if you like, the stuff that if it's not there, the rest of it doesn't work is culture. And a lot of people think about culture in terms of uh, it's this kind of ethereal thing. It doesn't really matter. I kind of get it. I kind of don't. I'm going to write my values on the wall and then forget about them. This episode is is going to take you to another place so so just to be so it's in context of that scribe media is ranked the number one top company culture in america by entrepreneur magazine and where we get into today with jt is how that's been crafted the principles behind that and what i'm going to do is i'm going to um, put into the show notes the, the the sort of values and principles of his business so you can see how intentional and how how really amazing they are in in driving kind of what has been created there okay so lots lots in this episode it's a long one but jt's a fascinating guy we have a great conversation and i definitely think you'll get a lot out of all the high notes um, that we have from our discussion so there you have it welcome to scale up your business jt mccormick Hi, everybody. It's Nick here, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Now, I am delighted to have with me today a very special guest. Now, before I introduce who that guest is, I'm going to read something from their website. It says, I am not a drug dealer. I am not a rapper. I am not an athlete, but I am very successful. Welcome to the show, JT McCormick. <laughs> Nick, thank you, sir. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, those those were my three avenues out of my environment. So uh, no one told me about the fourth option of entrepreneurship <laughs> or business. So yeah, those those were my three avenues. 
<laughs> it's always good to have um, people who have got um, interesting, colourful, challenging stories. And I think, you know what, I, I've had a look at the stuff you've done. I've, I've looked at your book. Um, I got there. I mean, just take us through, man, who you are and, and kind of how you've become a really successful business person from, from obviously a pretty challenging upbringing. You know, I'll, I'll argue with anyone that the actual, my, my upbringing itself, it would in my opinion, help lead to some of the success. I've had so many people say to me, oh my gosh, JT, you had every reason not to succeed. And in my opinion, I had every reason to succeed. My, my thought was, okay, if you can make it through all those things, then you can work, work through this business aspect of it. But um, I mean, you, you've read the, the book, Nick, for, for your, your listeners. You know, my father was a, a uh, black pimp and drug dealer in the 1970s. Um, he put women on a street corner, the women sold their bodies and, and my dad took every dollar. And then my, my dad also managed to father 23 children. So I'm one of 23. Oh. And then my mother is white and she was an orphan. She was raised in a 1950s institutional orphanage. Uh, to this day, we don't know where our last name comes from. My mother was given the last name McCormick in the orphanage. So to this day, I had no, no clue why I have this last name, but it, it is what it is. Um, you know, raised on welfare, extreme poverty. Uh, there were times where I would eat out of the trash can to, to have something to eat because I knew there was nothing to eat when I got home. Uh, in and out of juvenile three different times. I, I have a, a GED and I have no college degree. So there, there's a there's an overview. There's obviously a lot more details that go into that, but that's no, a, no, that's, no, no, that's no, no. That's an overview. It's, just to jump back on what you said at the very beginning of that, um, and I believe this as well. It's the it's the things that that some people would look at as adversity that that molds you and craft you into the person you are. And I had a, a pretty challenging upbringing as well, different story, challenging things. But I tell you what, I look back now and, and think about some of the painful experiences, which were painful at the time. But you know what? Had I have not gone through them and learned how to go through them and learned how to transform myself, my identity, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So exactly. I look at them as gifts, you know what yes. I mean, in some cases. Yes. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's it's interesting I had a very chaotic childhood, you know, bounced from from relative to relative, house to house, was homeless at 13, and there wasn't a lot of structure, wasn't a lot of consistency uh, and discipline, and the damnedest thing, that chaos has actually helped me in business because business is very structured. It's very routine. It's consistent. You get to move the levers where my childhood, none of that existed. So I've actually found a little bit of peace over in business because you can structure these things. You know, the income statement is the income statement. It doesn't lie. It just, these are the numbers. What are you going to do with it? How did you get, let's move into that. How did you get good at this then in terms of the business side? I understand that first part of what you said, but you've, you've made, you know, you know, multi-million um, dollar companies. You've created this. What was the transition to be able to do that? Uh, and and, and what, what have you kind of, what was the journey like to get to that? You know, I, I, I got to go back to, to my childhood a bit as well. You know, I, I said this story the other day, Nick, and, and I've never said this story on any podcast out loud. It was actually, I, I was speaking with somebody at the office and it hit me that even as a kid, I 
was always in the mode of how can you improve? How can you make the business model better? And a lot of people are going to like to hear this example, but I'm going to share it with you because it was what I was raised in. So my father was a pimp and what, what, I would go around at times with him and we would collect money from the prostitutes and things of that nature. But I remember as a kid sitting in the car thinking to myself, wow, he takes every dollar. I wonder if I was, did a 60, 40 split or a 50, 50 split with the prostitutes. Would I have more prostitutes? Would I have more loyalty and would I make more money? And I remember thinking that as, as a kid, and again, that's, you know, people may think, you know, oh my God, that's, that's so disgusting, but that was the environment I grew up in. So it, it, even as a kid, I was looking at how do we scale? How do we improve the business model? And how do we grow this yeah, thing? I, I don't think anyone's going to judge you on, on that. You know, as, as you said beforehand, it's the environment. I often say that people become entrepreneurs around their kitchen table because, you know, their parents are talking about stuff and you can't help but hear that stuff. You know what I mean? It sort of yeah. becomes part of you. And it's funny, you, you, drew, you said something that's quite interesting there because I believe this as well. I, I always talk about there being, there's lots of different types of entrepreneurs, but there's two that jump out for me, right? You've got the creative entrepreneur who's usually really good at startup. Uh, it's usually the person who's, um, I use Lego as an example. It's usually the person who, if they get a block of Lego, they, they kind of just make, they don't follow the instructions. They just kind of make something really clever. Yeah. And then you've got the other person who can see the problem in that, right? You know, goes into a business and sees the issue and can cl with absolute clarity knows where to fix it knows where to optimize it, knows how to create growth. And I'm definitely the latter, right? So yeah. that's why I say scale up is about that optimization, turning the thing into a machine. It sounds like you're there as well. It sounds like oh, you can go in and you can see that. To totally. I, matter of fact, I'll, I'll take it a step further. I am not your zero to one guy. Do not put me in a room and ask me to think something up. I, I, that's, that's not my thing. But if you say, okay, here's the product or service, then I can tell you, oh, okay, we can scale this to 100 million. We can scale this to, to a billion. So I, I'm not your zero to one guy, but what, what I have figured out is I don't care what your product or service is. It all needs the back end of business. It needs culture. It needs people. It needs income statements, operations. So regardless of what your product or service is, all of it has to have what I call the business of business. Great. Well, let's get into that because that, I mean, you know, that's a cool piece to start with because I love, I love to hear everyone's perspective on the, on that type of, you know, fundamentals, let's call it. So if you're looking at a business and you're coming in there, your own businesses or others, what are those fundamentals? What is the business of business in your perspective? Number, number one piece right off for, for me is know your numbers, know your company. You don't know your numbers, you don't know your company. That's, that's number one, first and foremost. If you do not know your numbers, you don't know your company. And, and I'm going to pick on the, the VC companies here for a second. It, it's because it, it, I'm here in Austin, Texas. So we got a lot of VC money that flows around, around here in Austin. And I'm always amazed by the companies who started off and they're in a little garage or a little warehouse shack and, and they're just, just making it by. And then they go out and raise their series a and they raise $7 million. And for whatever reason, all of a sudden now they feel that they need to move downtown into the new hotness and pay 50 grand a year, a year <laughs> or a month for, for rental space. We got to get beer on tap. And, and I'm, I'm always amazed by that. Like, 
wait a minute, you you didn't just win the lottery. And, and in fact, Nick, get this one. I, I did a post one time. I said, athletes, VC-backed companies, and lottery winners all have something in common. And the common thread is all three come into a lot of money at once. And if you've never had to budget $2,000 a month, how are you ever going to budget a windfall of $5 million. And when I look at this, there's no secret that 70% of all VC-backed companies go out of business. Five years after winning the lottery, the lottery winners are broke. Athletes, three to five years after being out of the league, they're broke. And it's because they come into a windfall of money, but they've never had to budget it. So when I look at VC-backed companies, I just, I, I laugh when I see the things that they do and why they do them. And, oh, we're going to hire 150 people in, in six months. And I'm like, that's horrible. You know, so you, you, you and I are from the same cloth, mate. I, um, I don't, uh, it's for la- last week alone, I had 17 separate pitches for um, capital raising. Right, as we, I've got, I've got a number of different companies, and one of them helps that land. My background's private equity, so I'm up the chain a little bit. So it's different. That's where you start to look at profit, right, as opposed right. to a great idea. But I, you know, it's funny. Like um, I work with, I, I tend to stay at that end. But whenever I'm working with a VC-backed company, the same. You're exactly right. They go out there and they hire the very expensive salesperson. They so the first thing, particularly with their technology, they go and get the the, the tech guy from the big behemoth down the road, <laughs> pay him one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more a year. And and then expect him to come and transform the world. And then after like, you know, six months, nothing's happened. Right. <laughs> so right. there's that. And then you're right. They have the the barista in the office. Yes. And they, they always, and you kind of think, and I, I just find this world really weird. I do. I do. And I, and I know how VC works, but I kind of think, you know, it's not a profit first mentality. It's not a let's focus on the stuff that, that that creates value. Let's let's you know be innovative, but at the same time understand where we're going. But 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 do it in a very intentional way. Yes. Um, the psychology, and, and we're getting into a little bit the mindset of of money here, and the mindset of business um, is out of kilter in some of those businesses uh, to what is going to get them to the to the area where they want to get to. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting too, Nick, because. Uh, I, I'm I'm all about the profit, and so so I'll speak on Scribe. So we're a five-year-old company, and we have no VC money, no private equity money. There's no outside investors, and here's the damnedest thing: we're profitable. So we're a five-year-old company, no outside money, and we're profitable. It's it's not arrogance when I say this, but when we're celebrating these unicorns, a, a we work of a, a fake ass $48 billion valuation that was never real, the real unicorn is a company that's five years old that can say, hey, we're profitable and we took no outside money. And it was interesting because for a while we were housed in WeWork. Uh, we were there for about nine months. And I remember meeting a gentleman and he said, uh, are you guys on your angel round, your seed round, your, your you know, series A? And I go, no, we don't have any outside money. And he goes, nothing. And, and like his face was just, he couldn't even understand, like, how is that possible? And so, yes, it's, it's a mentality where, I don't celebrate the fact that someone went out and raised a Series A, Series B. And what's real funny, Nick, is when I see you on like Series E, like how far down the alphabet are you going? Uh, but the, the mentality is not for profitability. I'm not a big fan of how many subscribers did, do you have? What's the top line? I want to know what's the, the profitability. And, and, and then anyone too, Nick, that wants to 
you know, tried to throw Amazon into the mix. You're talking a, a that's a unicorn. That's a one in a, a lifetime thing where someone came out and said, we're not going to worry about profitability and we're going to grow into this behemoth. Do not, when you're trying to start your company, compare yourself to Amazon because that's just not even a, a fair comparison. Yeah. It also starts to, I mean, I find sometimes, you know, it starts to get into vanity as opposed to anything that's tangible. Yes. So there's this idea because I, a lot of the time, um, particularly when I was doing the private equity stuff, I was working with people who were going to get a capital event for the first time when buying their businesses, right? Um, it's going to be life-changing money. And quite often than not, the, you'd say, okay, what, what really is life-changing money for you? And the figure, the figure is always somewhere between five and 15 million. Right? Can you think about it? If you had, if you had, let's say, the average of that, you had ten million dollars. You probably, if you're smart and you can invest that well, you're probably not going to have to rely on on an income again. You're going to have to have um, different investments and all right. those sort of things. But I always say to some of the ones who come and say, oh, "I've got a unicorn." I hear this all the time. You know, we're going to sell for hundreds of millions. I'm like, why does that matter? Right. Well, explain to me why that matters. And then it's funny that the blank expression is always, "Well, I've never really thought of that because." All my friends are trying to do this and you know what I mean? Yeah. It's bizarre. But uh, totally. I, it, it, in, in, in my opinion, too, it, it takes away from structuring a great company. You know, right now yes. we're obviously in the middle of the virus disruption. You know, we there's uh, we have 50 people in, in our tribe. We call ourselves a, a, a tribe. And there's 50 of us. We've not had to make one layoff. We're not going to do any any layoffs. And to me, that's the definition of how did you structure your company going into a a disruption or a downturn? Granted, no one can predict a, a virus disruption of what we're going through, but everyone can focus and prepare them their company for a, a downturn. And so we, we look to structure for the long term, not just the, the here and now. And so one of our proudest things, and in fact, we had our second largest signed revenue month in company history in April. Wow. I want to get into um, Scribe a little bit later on as well. We can talk around kind of what you do because you've got some some interesting people that you've worked with that I see as well. But um Back to what we said before about the fundamentals, the business of business. So yep. profit first, cash. I get that, hundred percent get that. What's what's next? What do you? What's the other areas? You know, I, I don't know that I would put one in front of the other. You know, for for me, people first. I, I go yeah. off three rules: people, process, profits. So many companies will. I've heard so many people debate with me, and they'll say, "Well, no, process first. And my attitude is, you can have a flawless process. And if you put bad people in it, they will wreck your process. So give me great people. We can build great process and we can make great profits. And then obviously you have those companies out there who will put profit first and, and people last. In my opinion, that's the majority of your publicly traded companies because uh, first and foremost, they, they are beholden to their shareholders. So it's shareholders, customers, then they're the employees. So I, I believe that you put people first. And for us, it's all about the culture. If you truly put the culture first and the people first, and, and it's a one for one profitability and culture, because at the end of the day, the profitability has to pay for some of the culture. So it, it's a one for one, but we put people first and, and very proud of the fact that 
you know, uh, Entrepreneur Magazine rated us uh, the number one company culture in America. We've won the number one best place to work in Austin, number two in Texas. And, and it's all by way of putting people first. And, and why those uh, accolades are important to, to me, Nick, is they're voted on by anonymous surveys by our tribe members. So this isn't like the Inc. 5000 where the measurement is how did you perform year over year in revenue? That's that's how you move up the Inc. list. Our accolades, the, the, the awards that we've won, are directly associated to people and culture. I believe if you treat people um, you know, fairly, you treat people with respect that They'll, they'll be even more loyal to you and you can build a, a better company. Great. Well, let's, uh, let, let's go deep if we can into that one piece. Because yeah. on this show before, we've, we've, I've spoken a lot about profit. I've had good old Mike McCallowitz on with his Profit First stuff. And I've talked quite a lot about process. And I love all those things, by the way. Those three, three areas are probably the areas I would say um, are probably the focus areas for me with my businesses. But we haven't gone into people and culture much on Scale Up Your Business. Right, and I'd like to start at the beginning a little bit here. So when you when you started, let's talk about Scribe, and you're thinking about how do you create an, a culture that's powerful with intention, which puts people first. Where do you start with that? Everything's around the the people first mentality. So I'll, I'll share some of the things that that we do that show yeah. the, the the culture and the people. So here here's a great example. Uh, yes, I'm the CEO. Yes, I'm the president. But no one works. For me, people work with me. And that's very important. You know, so some people will say, oh, you know, my boss, JT. No, I'm no one's boss. Uh, you, you work with me. I'm no more important to the organization than, than you are. And in fact, this is an important one to me, Nick. If you go to our website right now and you look at the About Us page, I'm at the bottom. You go to most About Us pages for, for companies, the first thing you see is the C-suite executives, founders, CEOs, chairmen. My opinion is if you are in leadership, your role is to serve and support those people you work with. So for me, I'm at the bottom of the page because I am the foundation support of serving all of those individuals that you see before me who actually do the work. So in, in putting people first, it, it's truly a culture uh, mindset that, that we go off of. Uh, here's, here's another one for, for people. Uh, you hear this all the time with companies, uh, client satisfaction, you know, client satisfaction is number one, uh, people satisfaction. And what I find interesting is the word satisfaction. That's horrible. That, that's your bar. Would, would, you, would you ever want your wife or your spouse to say, oh, yeah, I got a satisfactory husband? Would you want your children to say, oh, I got a satisfactory dad? So I, I find it interesting. The bar is customer satisfaction. For, for us, it's we want you to be fulfilled. I, I want my wife to be able to say, oh, I've got a phenomenal husband. I want my children to say, I've got a phenomenal dad. And I want our authors that we work with to be able to say, it was a phenomenal experience working with them. So it truly from externally with the authors, people we work with to internally, the people we work with. Providing benefits to take that additional stress off of our uh, tribe members. Uh, we have an emergency 
fund within our company. I, I never want someone to have to go to a, a high interest payday loan because an emergency happened. So, you know, we have a, a $1,500 emergency fund set up. No questions asked. You, you, you borrow the money. You don't start paying it back for three months and, and we take monthly payments from it. No interest. But there are little things that we're set up to support our tribe members, our, our people. And, and we ran the numbers. I'll leave you with this one, Nick. It is easier to get into an Ivy League school than it is to get into Scribe. Is that right? That's so, okay, it. so let's 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 uh, let's play with this a bit because none of this stuff happens by accident. No. <laughs> you're, no. you're a humble guy, JT, but none of this stuff happens by accident. This is all <laughs> intentional stuff. And the thing is, you've let the cat out of the bag because you already started the conversation with me talking about process and structure. H how have you created this? I mean, where, where did you first learn this? I mean, it's not just that you, it's not intuitive. It wasn't just you made it up, but obviously you've learned over time, but you've obviously thought this through in a, in a very, uh, again, intentional way. You know, I'm, I'm an old guy, Nick. I, I'm 48 and... You know, for for me, again, growing up in, in chaos, it was, how, how do you do things better? How, how do you improve what's already there? And, and I, I just had this conversation yesterday. One of the greatest gifts that were, was ever given to me, uh, here, here in the States, the middle class, uh, you know, it, it's the largest class uh, of our country. And, and follow me, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, the middle class is, is huge. I didn't grow up in the middle class. I grew up very poor, low economic communities. So when I was 10 years old, my dad took me to a neighborhood in Houston, Texas. It was called River Oaks, one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in the country. So I never saw three bedroom, two and a half bath, mom and dad, middle class. All I saw was horrible poverty, abuse, neglect, uh, murder, drugs. And then he took me to a neighborhood that had $25 million homes. So one of the greatest gifts for me is I never saw the middle class. All I knew was I want to go from here to here. How do I get there? And the reason why I'm sharing that is much of that mentality has come in business as well. It's how do I bridge the gap to get from here to here? How do we create a phenomenal process and what's every detail that goes in between? One of our principles of the company, impeccable attention to detail. Attention to detail is everything. And unfortunately, where do you learn that lesson in life? They don't teach it in school. They don't teach it in college. But it's one of our principles because it's so powerful that if you have attention to detail, it will change the experience that, that people have with you. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I, the, thing I'm, the thing I'm reflecting on as you're talking is, is as I said, there's a lot of stuff um, I'm getting a sense of that you saw through your upbringing. And as we said beforehand, there's a gift in that as much as it was challenging at the time. But there are some really interesting fundamentals. I mean, I'm, you know, back to what I said at the very beginning here about, you know, you know, there was no real backstory for you to be very successful, but you're very successful. I'm understanding this now. I think you need to change your website. <laughs> you, you, you know, you've, you've got a, a certain degree of, of, of focus. Um, we'll talk about empathy a little bit more, process. You know, you, you are really clear. The clarity you have between the A to B, I'm getting a sense, is very much there. So, so you've, you've had the vision of what this looks like in your head, and then you've executed and made a process around it. Because coming up with the 1500 loan doesn't just happen. That's listening to people. That's understanding being, being yes. on the pulse and then you, introducing it. 
you nailed it on the the listening to people. Uh, one of the the greatest things for for me again, one of our principals in the company, ask questions. Man, Nick, I've built a career out of asking questions. I, I have to give credit to my third grade teacher, Mrs. Dedek. She said there are no stupid or dumb questions. And, and it's interesting, when I was putting that principle into our culture doc, someone challenged me and they said, JT, that's not true. There are stupid or dumb questions. And I said, okay, well, give me an example. They said, what about the person who asked the same question over and over and over? I said, that person's not the dumb or stupid person. The dumb or stupid person is the one that continues to answer the same question. I said, because obviously you're not teaching, coaching, or, or explaining yourself correctly to where this person is understanding, or the person who continues to ask, they just don't give a damn. But you need to identify what's the breakdown. So I, I'm huge on asking questions, even from a leadership perspective. My role is not to be the smartest person in the room. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I, I, I live on three leadership lessons. Uh, rule number one, surround the company with people far smarter than myself. Rule number two, surround myself with people far smarter than myself. And then rule number three, repeat rules one and two. So that, that's, that's pretty much how I go about doing everything. I can't spell, I can't tell you an adverb from an adjective, but I'm the CEO of a publishing company. Why? Because I surrounded myself with people who know how to do that. Yeah. And you have the vision for what it is. You have the ability to see where there are problems and be able to solve them. And and as I said beforehand, the, the humility to, to be able to implement those lessons, because a lot of people, one of the mistakes I've seen in my corporate career all the time is you'll see someone running a division. And the last thing they'll do is hire someone better than themselves because there's the fear and uncertainty that they're going to be replaced. But the, yes. the, the crazy thing is that's exactly what happens because you haven't hired, you know, the all star or whatever you want to call it. Yep. So, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, okay. I, I, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to surround myself with people far smarter than myself. You know, I, I'll share this where I, I took this lesson from. Uh, there's a book called Think and Grow Rich. And oh, I, haven't, one, I haven't heard of that book. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's two, the playbook. It's exactly. The play, you know two of the lessons in there that stood out for me. And I read this book when I was maybe 20, 21 years old. Two of the yeah. lessons that stood out for me. Uh, lesson number one, and I'm paraphrasing, is mm -hmm. when Thomas Edison said that he took over 10,000 times to uh, invent, you know, discover electricity and the light bulb. And he said, did I fail 10,000 times or did I find 10,000 ways that didn't work? And for me, that mentality became, oh, you only actually fail if you stop trying. So, so, and you know, this is, this is hot in the VC area, the whole fail fast. Oh, hell no. I will never say fail fast. I have spent my entire life trying to learn faster. So fail fast is ridiculous to me. I don't want to fail fast. And I truly believe you only fail if you stop trying. So I, I got a, a lot of failed relationships from my past because we broke up and we're not together anymore and we stopped trying. But when I was the first time president of a software company, my God, I made mistakes. But I didn't fail because the goal is to learn, not repeat, and grow from those mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. And, and this is important for, for your audience, in my opinion. Here's what I find interesting about the society we live in. We have the audacity to say, you learn the most from your mistakes, but no one shares their mistakes. 
If you look at any blog post, any LinkedIn, anything, everyone's celebrating. Top five things Jeff Bezos does to be successful. Top 10 things Steve Jobs did. I don't care. Give me the top five mistake list. Give me that one. So I find it interesting that here we live and, and preach. You learn the most from your mistakes, but no one's sharing their mistakes. So for me, I, I, throughout our company, I always share my mistakes. I teach through mistakes that I've made, lessons that I've learned. In fact, we use Slack internally, and we have a Slack channel called Lessons Learned. Awesome. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of things here. I'm trying to capture it so we can kind of, I like people to listen to, um, to guests when they come on and take something away. You know, it takes even small bits that they can go, you know what, I haven't thought about that before. Perhaps I could apply that in my business. So I'm just kind of, there's so many bits that you're giving out here around culture. Yeah. <laughs> there's a piece here. One of the things that jumps out to me, as you were saying there, is, is, is the idea of listening is really important. One of the definitions of culture that I love and I've heard many a time over is that um, culture is the thing that happens when the leader or the CEO isn't around. Right. It's what people do. Um, how, do you, how do you kind of keep it going? I mean, is, is there a point now where people just understand the standards, they understand the principles, they own it anyway. So there's a point where you don't have to be there, even though you might have been the catalyst. Is that, is that where you've got to? In, in my opinion, it's, it's uh, constant contact is, is what I call it. You, you always, so again, you heard me say we use Slack internally. Whenever there's a celebration, maybe we had, a, had phenomenal feedback from an author, that celebration, we have a celebrations channel, it has to be tied to a value or a principle. So you keep the values and principles always top of mind. When something happens, you'll call someone else out for a principle or a, a, a value violation. So it's, it's keeping them top of mind and making sure that we live by those principles and values nonstop. We, we never just put them on the wall and, and that's it. In, in fact, you, you'll appreciate this, Nick. Our principles and values, our culture doc is public facing. Anyone can go and look at it. Anyone can add an edit to it, you know, wh whatever the case may be. And the reason being is I, you, you come from corporate America. I've never understood this. When most people join a company, they don't know what the company principles and values are until they're there. And then they understand, oh, this is what they stand for. That is just ass backwards to me. So our culture doc is public facing because we want you to see what we are and what we stand for long before you ever apply. And so if you like our principles and values, great. At least we know we're on the same page there. Now apply. So we keep those principles and values. The, the company is truly built off of the culture. We even have a language Bible. Nick, I, we, we, so our language Bible, I'll give you the, it, it was actually developed by me. Um, the top three <laughs> things for me, I do not use the words and, and eliminate them. Hope, wish, and luck. Take those out of your vocabulary. They cannot be used within the, the office. And, it's and not run, a strategy, as they say. <laughs> yes. And, and I'll, I'll be quick. I'll run through all three of them. So when I was a kid and I would hope my dad would come pick me up, he never showed up. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, never, never did anything, never put any food in the refrigerator. And, and I'm so passionate about this. I've got a friend of mine that's a, it's a pastor. And he said, JT, I say hope in my sermon every Sunday. He said, in fact, I said hope 16 times last Sunday. I said, okay, follow me. Do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? 
I said, see, hope doesn't produce anything. Belief forces execution. If I believe there's a God and I believe that plan, then I've got to follow that plan. If I believe I can have the big house, then I've got to execute to go get the big house. But just hoping anyone can sit back and hope and nothing happens. And then wishing, Nick, Nick man, this is a big one. So wish, wishing does nothing. You know, I, oh, I wish I had a big house. I wish I had the career. I wish I could start my own company. I've got four little ones. There are uh, six, five, three, and one. And awesome. so we got a lot, we obviously have a lot of birthday parties at my house, but when my kids blow out the candles, we don't say make a wish. We say make a goal. Wishing doesn't produce anything. Make a goal. I love it. And then the last one, luck, there's no luck. Uh, people will say, oh, the $100 million lottery winner. Oh, she's so lucky. No, she bought a ticket. She executed. Yeah. Was that whole thing about that? I forget who said the quote, but you get um, was acknowledged in um, in public for what you do in private or what you practice in private. So luck for me is 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 in many cases lots of hard effort. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not luck. It's not yes. luck. It's the work that's put in. Totally. Um, the uh, just to share with you very quickly, it's your interview. But um, I work for a company. My background's in the media game. I used to work for a company called Getty Images. Yeah, and yeah. and we and we had a, a very similar concept called the Seven Leadership Principles, and they were everywhere, and they were exactly the same thing. They were actually more behaviours than they were values, and it took something like ten interviews to get a job at Getty Images, because the first interview was can you do the job, right? The other nine were do you fit the culture. And their yeah. culture was one of, we don't want strategists here. We want people who get stuff done better yes. than anybody else. Execution. And that, biz that business, you know, was sold for $5 billion and it was sold a number of different times. But it was all driven through that very deliberate, intentional culture. So I, I totally. get where you're coming from. And it massively works. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, even one of our, our values is optimism. You know, that we don't do uh, negativity. Negativity has never done anything for anyone. And, and that's not to say we walk around with rose-colored glasses and think, that, you know, all is well with the world. No, but be optimistic. How do we solve that challenge? How do we overcome that that obstacle? Uh, and again, like you said, it's, it's a behavior. It's a way of life. It's the way we, we work. Uh, people know this. You, there is a high probability you can get fired if you ever say, thank God it's Friday at our, our office. And the reason being is if you feel that you're in a place where you've got to trade two for five, you're in the wrong place and you need to go find you. You're not a good fit for us and we're not a good fit for you. So let's, let's separate and go our, our, our separate ways. Thank God it's Monday. Thank God you're employed. So we, we don't, we're very big on the behaviors and the, the way of life and, um, much like you said with, with Getty Images, it, it's truly uh, culture driven. Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, because you said it's public, I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes to to your cultural stuff. Your um, What do you call them actually? Do you call them values or do you call, have a, a specific name for the, the So we, we have values and principles. So okay. we, we have our five values and then we have 11 uh, principles that, that go under that. And, and that is, as you said, that's accessible. So we can we can put that on the yep. show notes for people. Oh, totally. Because I get a lot of questions people ask, because people find culture one of those things where it's it's, it's, it feels like it's it's not tangible. It feels this amorphous thing, and some people even go as far as saying it's not important. I hear mm -hmm. that, particularly in the in the in the VC and private equity world, because they all they want to hear is strategy and execution. But they don't realize the glue, the stuff that makes all that happen, is going to be the way that people feel and act and behave. 
Totally. Um, so that's cool. I'm glad we've covered this today. I, you know, when I was preparing for this, I didn't. I knew we would talk a little bit about leadership. I know we talk about creating people first cultures, but the depth of that conversation has been cool. So thank you for that. For sure. For sure. Let's talk. Let's talk about. Um, let's 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 change tracks slightly, if we can, JT. Let's talk about your business, um, okay. Scribe. So we've talked obviously about the culture side of it. Let's talk about what it is and what it does, because um, I think this is quite fascinating in its own right as well. So we have what we do. We're, we're a publishing company, and and we help authors uh, write, publish, and market their books. So in the last five years, we've worked with over sixteen hundred authors. Now, uh, a lot of the authors you'll you'll know. Uh, last year, one of our big wins, we published the book for the ex Navy SEAL David Goggins. So don't, last don't, year, don't, Dave, go, don't, Dave, don't go there. Don't yeah. go there. That's my that's my book of the year. Yeah, see, yeah. I, <laughs> see, I'm a, I'm a no, I'm an ultra runner, right? I run 100 mile races. Oh, there you go. Right. So, so I, I mean, I love that book, and I love the because um, uh, when they did the uh, the audible version, if you like, it was not a yes. typical. It was like a podcast slash. You know, that's the man. first time that was ever done. That we, we, that it. that we're very proud of. That's the first time that was ever done on a, an audio book. And so, yeah, he, he had the second most sought after book in America last year, second only to Michelle Obama. And that wow. book was, was huge. And, and don't get me wrong, very proud of that book and the, the success it had. But for me, from a, a quality standpoint, we published also the book for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. That one, for me, spoke volumes because my attitude is if we're good enough for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, no one else has an excuse to work, not work with us. So, you know, we've worked with some, some great authors. Um, right now, we're working with Nassim Taleb. That, that's a, a big one that'll be out uh, from a business standpoint. Uh, Gino Wickman, we, we did. Uh, yep. We did his traction and book. all those things. Yes. So, you know, uh, David Bach, the, the uh, latte factor, you know, he's had nine New York Times bestselling books. So uh, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. We're working with him. So we, Another you know, one of my favorite books. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. The big names are only about 2% of our authors. The great majority of our authors are business owners, CEOs, uh, founders that, you know, consultants that are writing their book because, you know, they credibility, thought leadership lead generation or maybe a legacy piece so so many of our authors want to to leave that legacy piece for their family so it's quite a tradition the reason i wanted to get into this is as my background was in uh, magazine publishing a long time ago and newsprint i worked for news international for a number of years and some of the behemoths in the publishing world are very very difficult to take down or they certainly used to be and they're they're certainly probably a little bit less um agile and innovative than they need to be but how have you managed to come in there and disrupt that industry I mean, we talked about culture, but you're obviously, you know, punching well above your weight on some of these these things, <laughs> right? You know, if I if yeah. I can say that. So, it's, yeah. have you done that? So, let's talk about the business side of that as opposed to just the culture, because that's some impressive stuff as well. The biggest piece is with our authors, they own their IP. So, we're traditionally traditional publishing, in my opinion, has gone wrong. Is if you go and you publish your book traditional, they own anywhere from 85 to 90 percent of your book and the book rights, and you get the crumbs that are left over. So, in the in the case of David Goggins, he owns 100 percent of his book. He gets to do whatever he wants with his book. When you see a traditional 
author with a traditional publisher. That's not the case. The the publisher owns that book. And so with our, our authors, they own their book and they can do whatever they want with it. They obviously keep the majority of the, of the revenue. Uh, so that's been the, the big piece. And then also traditional publishing, their money is made through book sales. Our money as a publisher is made from you engaging with us and paying us to actually do your book. So book sales are secondary because we want to focus on a quality book first and make sure that what you're coming to us for to publish this book, you're going to be able to accomplish your goals so we can help you market it, things of that nature. Traditional publishing, unless you've got 2 million Instagram followers, they're not interested in you. No, absolutely. So, so this is something I, I can see why the model is different. And how did you come up with that model? Did you see that there was an opportunity to, to flip things on its head? So, so this is going to be funny. This goes, this goes back to uh, the very beginning of the conversation of the z- zero to one versus the one, one to a billion. So yeah. I was, I, I'll give you the, the, the short version of the story. I was the president of a software company uh, and we had start, I was at that company and I was the lowest paid person of the software company. I sat in a storage closet on a fold out metal chair, making my calls. And over a two year time period, I ended up becoming the president of the software company. And then we grew that company into having offices in Austin, Dallas, Houston, and Monterey, Mexico. So, I went from the lowest paid person on a fold out metal chair to president of the company and we scaled it. And and again, I was surrounded by people far smarter than myself. But uh, when I was traveling a lot, I decided, oh my gosh, if something happened to me, my children would not know my story, where I come from. And so I set out on this mission to write my book. I got introduced to the two co-founders of Scribe, which is Zach O'Bron and Tucker Max. And so Tucker comes over to the software company. We meet with one another. And, and as we're wrapping up, he says, man, you, you've built a great software company here. And I said to him, I go, no one person builds a great company. It's, it's, that's a, a fictional uh, thought process. I don't care who the leader is. I don't care who the CEO is. No one person is responsible for building a great company. So he said, will you give me feedback on our process as you go through it to do your book? At the time, Scribe was only 13 months old, so they were a brand new company. So I was going through the process and I'd call Tucker up and I'm like, hey, you need to stop this immediately. What the hell is this? Whoever told you this was a good idea? And so Tucker invites me to sit, uh, he said, hey, would you sit on our advisory board? And I go, "Hmm, why not? Um, One thing led to another. He invited me to an executive meeting and then he and Zach, the two co-founders, sit me down at Starbucks one day and they're like, hey, if we give you a ton of equity, will you come be the CEO of, of the company? And so I said, yeah, why not? I, you know, I was the president of a software company. I can't write code. May as well be the CEO of a publishing company and I can't spell. So uh, God bless America. <laughs> But that's, yeah, but you that's, but you can you can fix things and you can see where the potential is in things and you can see the well, potential in probably both people and business. I can, I'm getting a sense as well. And and that that was the the whole uh, piece behind it. You know, I'm I'm again I'm not your zero to one guy. I didn't start the software company. I didn't start the the scribe in, in its current form as as the publishing company. But I understand the ins and outs. Even when we were with the software company, I didn't write code. But what I realized the the uh, bridge that needed to be gapped 
uh, the, the gap that needed to be bridged was one, uh, software developers are not good salespeople. So that's number one. <laughs> number two, uh, project management and, and the, the, the bridge between communication with the other companies. You know, your greatest software developers, they just wanna go, leave me alone, let me go write code. They don't wanna sit there and interact and, and have the, the, the small talk and things of that nature. So that was the, the, the bridge there that helped us um, grow. And then here at the uh, publishing company, it's just been a combination of things of the, the old model of how things were done. Why are we doing it this way? And again, uh, offering a phenomenal uh, experience for, for authors. L last piece on that, Nick, I always express to people that most companies have the luxury that they're either a service company or a product company. We're both. We have to provide you with a phenomenal service and then have a great product, which is the book on the end. Yeah. Okay. I get it. And what's the, what's the future of this? What's the vision? Where do you want to take the company? Have you got that clear in your head? Have you got a direction of travel? You know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I laugh when I hear people tell me they have a 10 year plan. Our, our, our society moves so fast. I, I'm more of a two to five year type guy because, mm. you know, there, there are people we're hiring for in our company right now that last year, I couldn't have told you that we were going to need to hire for that, that role. So sometimes when I hear someone say, yeah, we had a 10 year plan. Mm, I kind of call bullshit a little bit because you don't know in 10 years, you, you may have to completely pivot and, and shift in a different direction. So for, for us, it's continue to grow the, the marketing aspect of this, uh, continue to, to do things and disrupt the audiobook portion of it. As you said, you, you listen to David's book and, and how that was done. So, you know, that, that's, that's our approach. All things publishing and, and media uh, right now over this, this virus disruption, we just launched a new course um, in the middle of the virus disruption and we had 5,000 people attend this course and it's just blown up for us over the last uh, seven weeks. So again, continue to disrupt and, and do what we do. Awesome. Well, listen, I've got three final questions for you, JT, if that's okay, because you've been generous yeah. with your time. Okay, you're ready. So first yes, one, sir. best piece of advice you've ever been given and by whom if you want to share it, but what's the best piece of advice? Uh, you know, I, I'm going to share this, and it, it it's only been about nine months that I've said this out loud. Uh, the, the, the advice came from my dad, and for the longest, I wouldn't give him credit because, you know, he, he wasn't a good dad, and I didn't want to give him credit. But my dad told me when I was a kid, he actually told me and a couple of my other siblings, he looked at us and he said, no matter what you do in life, be the best at it. He said, if you're going to sh sweep the streets for a living, be the best street sweeper. Now, he could have given us a little something more to aspire to, but that, that was his uh, feedback. And, and I remember my first job after I got my GED, I was cleaning toilets and it, it sucked. It was, a, it was a horrible job. It was filthy. Um, if I can say this, it was a shitty job, no pun intended, but right. <laughs> uh, I, I stood, I stood in front of those toilets and I remember saying to myself, okay, if this is my job, I'm going to have the cleanest toilets in, in all of the state of Texas. And that directly came from my dad saying that to me, no matter what you do, be the best at it. And ever since then, my goal has always been to, to be the best. I want to be the best father, the best husband, uh, the best CEO, any, anything that I'm doing, I want to be the best at it. 
You know what's funny? So two things out of that. You're the second person today who's used that same example of cleaning toilets and being the best at it. Yeah. I mean, it's... But what I mean by that, I mean, is like my mission, if you like, and this is what I say, is I want to become the best version of myself, whatever that is, and I want to help other people. I want to inspire people to be the best versions of them because I 100% agree with that that feedback. It was given to me by my grandfather many years ago as well. There's no point being half-assed at anything. No. Right? If you're going to do it, do it, do it and do it to the best of your ability. And I and I a lot of people these days they don't understand that and they wonder why they're not progressing or getting to where they want in life, but they're not playing full out. They're not showing up. Totally. And 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 they have asked things as well. So many people try to be someone when everyone is looking, but they're a different person when no one is looking. And what I mean by that is if you're walking out of the restroom at the office and there's a paper towel on the ground, take two seconds to pick it up and put it in the trash can. What are you, you, you above the, the cleaning crew that cleans up the restroom. So what, what's your character? Who, who are you when no one's looking? Because who you are when no one is looking is who you are when everyone is looking. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Next question is, what's the worst piece of advice? Oh, wow. I've, I've never entered that, uh, that question. I, I don't know if it was so much advice. It, yeah, it, it wasn't advice. It was people telling me because um, people telling me I would never amount to anything. People mm-hmm. telling me that. Uh, I'll never be able to accomplish some of the things that, that I've done. Um, that, that would, I, I don't know if that was necessarily advice. It was people just telling, I, you know, I've, as a kid, I remember I was called retarded. I was called slow, um, that I, I wasn't smart. No one really had any expectations uh, of me. So that would be the, the worst piece of, of it, advice that that i was given or or people said to me because i don't really think that was advice <laughs> no but it's it, it doesn't matter it's it, I, I always like to ask that question because i think you learn as you said at the very beginning you learn a lot from mistakes and learnings as much as you do from kind of the stuff that's always positive right yeah. so you know I, I i listen to you answer that question and, and obviously it's ignited a lot of fire in you to do what you've done you know, I, I think if someone questions my my ability to do something and that um, conflicts with, with what I want to achieve, it fires me up to prove people wrong. You know, I use it as something to ignite. Yeah, to- totally. You know, it's at the end of the day, I always knew I had hard work. I never ha- obviously I don't have the academic credentials. I don't have, you know, the, the, the formal education, but I always knew that I would outwork anyone that I would think that I would ask questions. And that, that was the piece that I always knew I could control. I can control my work ethic. You know, if you're going to sit around and binge watch Friday through Sunday, Game of Thrones, well, guess what? I'm going to study scale growth, the markets, business, um, you know, unbeknown to a lot of people, 60% of my net worth did not come from, you know, leading companies. And, and it came from actually investing in the stock market. And I, I taught myself how, how to do that. So uh, you, you can be what you want to be, but you have to put the time and the work ethic in, into doing, becoming what you want to be. Yeah. Love it. All right. Final question. And this is a bit of a difficult one because it's, um, it's, there's lots of different things going on, but a piece of advice that you would give 
people now who are going or business owners now that are going through COVID-19, you know, in terms of where they should be focusing or thinking or anything that comes to mind around that? So given my, my role, um, and, and I'm in several different mastermind groups, things of that nature, I've had a lot of CEOs, business owners reach out to me, hey, JT, what are you all doing to uh, structure and be safe and sound during this disruption? And so many people, uh, a couple of people have even been offended by, by my answer. And my answer has, has been, if you're trying to structure to be safe and sound right now in the middle of the, the disruption, you, you missed the boat. Uh, you, you structuring to be safe and sound happened a year ago, happened two years ago. And, and so when the, the disruption came about, we were prepared. No, again, no one could anticipate or prepare for a virus disruption, but we were prepared for a downturn, whatever that looked like, you know, election year or, or recession, what, whatever. We were prepared for that. And so the advice I would give now is if you're in the middle of it, one, be fully transparent. Tell, tell the, the people you work with, the people you serve, where you are as an organization. If you are facing layoffs, let people know that up front. Don't, don't disappear. So be in constant communication and be visible right now with your entire team, with, with the tribe. Don't go disappear, hide in a corner. You, you, if you are the CEO, the business owner, the leader, whatever the leadership role, role you're in, you have a responsibility to be transparent with, with those individuals. Don't just show up one day and then let everybody go. And, and so I would say right now, if you're in the thick of it and you weren't prepared going into it, be in constant contact, be transparent. And, and the last one, I'll, I'll swing hard on this one, Nick. Uh, I, I will say this, don't pull a Danny Meyer Shake Shack. Okay. And what I, what I mean by that is they took the small business money and spun it to where they got positive press because they gave the money back. And I found that to be very disgusting. And the, here, here's why I was okay that you applied to get the money. Great. If you figured out loopholes and the way you could get the money, great. Do your thing. You're a business owner. You, you wanted to participate and, and get the money. Great. Now, I don't knock you for that. What I knock you for, is had it not been made public that you all took money, you would have never given that money back. You would have kept that money and then you spun it to make it look like you were a positive because you gave the money back. And, and I just call complete bullshit on that. That's disgusting. I look at it as like a relationship where someone's had an affair. Are you sad that you, are you sorry you got caught? Or are you sorry you did it? And, and it took it a, a whole new turn when I knew that they had a hundred million dollars in cash and stock on their books. And you, you were on TV everywhere, Danny saying to you, you know, Oh my God, we had to lay off 2000 people. And, and you sang this sad song, but you had a hundred million dollars on the books. You didn't have to lay those people off. You chose to, and you gave the money back because public called you out. 
Yeah, we'll see, but we're getting now into kind of business ethics and, and authenticity, <laughs> and no, no, it's fine. But but you know, this is but I but I'm a massive believer in kind of uh, long term thinking, right? Yeah. I don't mean long term in terms of uh, you know ten years out. I mean I work all of my businesses work on annual cycles with twelve with twelve week cadence, right? All of them, ninety day cadence. You know, every day means something, right? Yes. Really important. That said, I don't like to make decisions that are short term decisions. Right. right. So there's a piece here, though. But what you find these days, and I and I don't buy into it. I agree with you 100. percent Is that people forget they people they forget the things that that they need to do that made them successful in the beginning, and they see these nice shiny green bills or or dollar signs or pound signs wherever you are, and all of a sudden they lose their way. It's a really it's it's horrific. Sometimes you know because I said I did 10 years in private equity. I saw it all. I saw it yeah. all. And the reason I don't work in private equity anymore, not not in the, in the way that I did. Is because it didn't um, align with my my values. Yeah, so I, get I, I, I totally agree with you. And you're you're right. It did cross into uh, ethics and things of that nature. But you're you're right. In the public markets, they're they're making decisions uh, quarterly decisions and not long term de- decisions. And it's if that's the game that you're playing, I understand it. I get it because that's the that's the game you're you're playing. But I can't stand. I, I can't say it enough. Uh, don't spin the game in your favor to to make it look like what you did was a positive. What wasn't a positive? Well, it's also it also totally and utterly um, is counter to what we we spent a lot of today talking about, which is culture. Right? Yes, you know, because because people aren't stupid, and I think you know if you want people to kind of work with you, you know, they have to believe in in not only the mission and everything you're trying to do, they have to believe in in who you are as a leader, and that's not just the CEO; it's the kind of everything that goes in the company. And I think you know if 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 people act that way, if they don't come from a position of authenticity, trust, credibility, um, they haven't got a lot of hope of keeping people, good people with them for a sustainable amount of time. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the whole idea of scaling your business, the whole idea of creating value, changing the world, making a difference, all of that disappears because all of that's been stripped away. So no, I get it. I get it. it you know, uh, last, last piece I'll give to that as well, Nick, for, for us, I'm, I'm big on transparency. So for, for uh, your, your listeners, the, the, the new entrepreneurs coming in and starting up, uh, every month we share the income statement with the entire company. And you, you know every dollar that was spent at a conference, travel, the, the water in the refrigerator. Uh, we're transparent with salaries. Everyone knows what I make. They know what the co-founders make. They know what everyone's salary is transparent. For me, what that does as well, it takes away water cooler talk. It takes away people wondering, oh, well, I wonder what they're doing. No, look, there it is. That's what we spend. That's what we make. This is, this is our profit. This is what, how much cash is in the bank. And here's everybody's salary. Wow. So this is a masterclass on culture, JT, which is probably what I'm going to call the episode. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Listen, it's been great having you on today. As I said, you've been generous with your time. Um, I was looking forward to this conversation when we started talking a few few weeks back and it uh, is absolutely delivered. So, So from behalf of all my listeners and myself, thank you very much for giving up your time and coming on Scale Up Your Business today. Hey, Nick, I I am humbled and flattered you would have me on, and I I appreciate you uh, listening. This, This was great. I had a great time. All right. Thanks very much.